Welcome to Influential She, the podcast about accelerating the influence of women in the world. You will find us to be a fresh voice in an old conversation. And here we are, your amazing co-hosts, Deb Soholt and Mel Shop. Well, welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Influential She. We're so excited to have you here. I'm your co-host, Mel Shop. And I'm Deb Soholt. And we're just so excited that you would tune in to Influential She. We just really appreciate everyone that listens in. Today, we're going to be talking about our high leverage practice of self. And this is something that you're only who you are and your values and what you bring to the world. But there's just so many times, and I think this is why it was important to us to talk about this concept, Mel, is that the world can pull you away from really who you are, that people want you to behave a certain way, act a certain way, become a certain thing. And that we could see over our careers that there were times where maybe we were not our most authentic selves and that it was holding us back from really having influence in the world. Yeah, but you know, I think it's not only holding us back necessarily. I, I, what I found, or for myself, that when I feel that, when that's happening, that I'm not content actually, with the way that I am. I'm not content internally. It's sort of that nagging feeling in your stomach where it's like, oh, this is really not who I am. You're not really in that flow and in that zone. Unfortunately, I think for that reason, it takes me from being away. It takes me away from being authentic, if that makes any sense. I think the authenticity is what I strive for, but it's easy to get pulled away from that when you're, you know, when you have other things you need to do. It is so easy to be pulled away. And I think your point is absolutely right, Mel, that it's about the flow. And when you don't feel like you are in that for yourself, and it doesn't mean it's just always the most jazzed moment, but it's how you feel comfortable in your own skin. And that is when you can truly start to accelerate your influence. And I'm just so excited to welcome our guest today because she is someone who really understands herself and has used that in an amazing way to really affect so many different arenas around the legal system. I'm just really happy and want to welcome Early Wiley to the show. Thanks for coming on. Well, thank you. I'm so glad to be here, Deb and Mel. It's wonderful. Thank you for having me here. Um, I believe that what you ladies are doing, women are doing in this this podcast is amazing. And, and as y'all were even leading in, I was hearing words that as a woman, I, I was keying in on genuineness, being authentic when we're, we don't do what we're comfortable in, in our own skin, how that makes us not our true self. And I think as women, we find that we're usually trying to please. We go from pleasing maybe our parents and our spouses, our children. Sometimes you'll You'll see younger women and the five-year-olds running the show. So I, that's, I mean, you know, <laughs> what I'm, I mean, I mean, it's one thing for a five-month-old. They're supposed to run the show. They need to go eat. They need to get their diapers changed. But I, I think that's just a wonderful place that y'all, you, both of you and Mel, I didn't say hi to you. So thank you for being here. I know you had yeah. a busy day getting here, um, but I just, I'm so honored to be here with two women that are doing great things themselves and don't brag about themselves. So I know that's not what it's about, but I'm just saying. Well, thank you so much, Early. So I want to tell our listeners just a little bit about you because you are one powerhouse woman. And Early is someone who has been a lawyer for quite some time, and she served as a judge currently. And I think it was about 10 years that you served as a judge. 
and and then was appointed to be the district attorney of Kaufman County in Kaufman County, Texas, when the the DA was slain within that district, which is just unbelievable. We're going to get into that a little bit in the show. But um, she was then appointed to be the district attorney by the governor and has really spent most of her life advocating and protecting victims of crime. So doing, uh, you know, just a whole variety of things. But when you really think about advocacy on behalf of other people, this is like really in the critical trenches. This is an arena where it's life or death. Like we're talking about things that, yes, you know, all kinds of abuse and just varying degrees of crime are out there, but Early has been involved in just protecting the most vulnerable at the worst moments. So we're just delighted um, that you would be on the show. And, you know, particularly to see a woman in this really high-powered position is like in a really important thing. But to begin with, Early, let's just, let's just kind of dial back to your original self and how you came to be. We had a pre-call to talk about this podcast. And one of the things you started talking about was your mother, Fern. And you said she was just like a force of nature. And I think so many times for us as women, the influence of our mothers and fathers at our early formative stages, the values that they had that then sometimes translate into the values that we have, they really start to make a difference in how we make our way in the world. Tell us a little bit about your mom and some of the things that happened that she influenced you in your understanding of yourself. That's a great place to start for me. My mother, uh, Fern, and her her real, her God-given name was Amanda Fern. She came into being a woman in the in the forties and the fifties, and a, a minority. But she never thought that she couldn't do anything. She couldn't do and achieve if she worked hard at it, and if she put her mind to it, and if she learned it. And she grew up. You guys live in South Dakota, but. Texas was very segregated in the time she grew up and she was very powerful. Mother was a, a nurse. She went away to a nursing school program on a train, no money, a large family. She had a large family at that time. I think there were 12 of them and she didn't know anybody in St. Louis, Missouri, and she wanted to be a nurse and she wanted to do something to help people. And when she came back home, before she met my dad, it was to help her community. And so she ultimately became a school nurse. But she was more of a community person. Mother was on, on boards. But you know how people go on boards and they like their names on a board for a piece of paper? Not her. If she was on a board, it was a purpose. So she would say, I am too busy to be on this board if we're not going to do anything. And mother always knew who she was. She drilled down in me everything that she could and what she would tell me all the time is you're a woman, you're a minority, you're just going to have to work harder. But if, but what she also did, she wasn't a cynic. She wasn't a person that walked around the chip on her shoulder because she would say, if you do the things you need to, it doesn't matter who you are. People will recognize it. With all the things that were happening in the South, she never doubted humanity. She thought the goodness of people. I was fortunate in the work that I do. I mean, a lot of women, young ladies, that have had the most unfortunate upbringing. And I did not. I had a wonderful mother. And when you start with, with people doing unspeakable things to you, it is amazing how those folks can actually change their lives. And, and that is a credit to them because for me, 
uh, I had a great place to start. And I, and so I think my mother's lesson to me is work hard, be genuine, be yourself. Okay. So I want to know then the early part of this, because your mother is a powerhouse, but so are you. So how did you take those things? And then how did it translate into where you went? One sad piece of the story is mother died young. I didn't really realize how young she was. She died in 94. And at the time, you know, she was 62. <laughs> She's a baby. Um, but I, for example, uh, I never wanted to be in medicine. Mother always said, you know, you could be a doctor. You, you could be a nurse. You're smart enough. I'm like, no, that's not how I want to help people. I thought I wanted to be in the law. I wasn't certain. But I always thought the irony was, the irony was that she cared about children and she wanted to make them safe. She was the first person I ever had come into our school and talk about child abuse and was really inviting outcries with women without saying it. Now I know what she's doing. And then in my professional life, the, the work that I love the most as a prosecutor, it was heartbreaking, was dealing with child abuse. So your parents do imprint you without even realizing it. My dad was a football coach. They loved kids. We would, they would take kids to, to schools that didn't have parents that could afford to drive them there so they could get into college. And I will tell you, I am 50 something years old. I went to college pretty quick. I did it pretty quickly. And, and it wasn't until I went to law school that I actually was not afraid of my mother. I thought she could just look into my heart and tell when I was lying. I'm telling you, I got to law school at 21. You know how kids, I'm not saying I was a kid like everybody else and, you know, the boyfriends and stuff, but I mean, because what she told me, I, I just remember she always, she's told me, you will respect me. I am the mother. And as long as I live, I'm the mother, you're the child. Her favorite thing when I was a little kid, because I had all these brothers. So this is her mindset. The cute little kid with the big brown, long hair and bows. And someone would say, Fern, you have a beautiful daughter. And she would say, hmm, I hope she's as pretty on the inside as she is on the outside. Beauty is as beauty does. I know, I know many beautiful women and it, it doesn't always turn out right. Learn something, <laughs> get something in your head. Because she would tell me, she goes, one day you'll be my age and it won't matter what you look like. And it's like, oh, yeah, she was right about that <laughs> because we all get older and there's always somebody younger, prettier, better. But those were the lessons that I took. I also had a grandmother in my life. I didn't even mention. And she was very grounded. She was a genuine old school grandmother that. And her, her nickname was Big Mama. You hear that in the South or some like Abba Medea movie. But she was not Medea. She was kind. She would cook and bake and listen to all of our stories. She would listen to my dramatizations more than mother. So I had, I never felt like guys first, girls second. It was, we sat at the table, we cut it up. Everybody's opinion mattered. So, so early talk about then with that strong, confident sense of self, because you had, you talk about all these influences that really helped you understand who you were. Talk about then how you started to translate that into this pathway of law. Because I think many times for women, it's better now, but it is sometimes a difficult path within that profession. So you arrived like equal opportunity in your mind because you talk about, you know, we cut it up around the table and, you know, everybody was like the same. Did you have any areas of roadblock and growth that you had to punch your way through? 
Absolutely. Because I don't, what everybody says affects you. So I did have confidence, but I was still growing up in the seventies and the eighties and coming into my own in the nineties, my first jobs from the nineties. And I remember not wanting to be the first to answer, not wanting to always be a, be the smarty, not always wanting to volunteer. We were kind of always still, my mother was still a Southern woman. So you, you, you kind of was a little genteel, a little bit in there, but when it came to making a tough decision, she always thought that I could, I could do it. I remember with the thought of going to law school and sometimes you're, it's economics. I'm like, mom, God, I'll be this age. And because she was wise, she would say, well, you're going to be that age anyway. And I'd say, well, she goes, look, baby, don't marry a lawyer. Just, just be a lawyer. Honestly, I didn't have a lawyer in the family. So when I got to law school at Texas, Texas School of Law, Texas Law, if you, it helps if you've had, my parents both went to college, but they never had postgraduate degrees. But I, I didn't know the tricks. I didn't know, you know, where to get information and people that had been around that, you know, that were in a little different economic group. They knew things. That's okay. I watched and I learned and I figured out things. I think I had good education at state schools, but some kids that went to better schools did better. Um, but you pick, you know, you study harder. I remember um, jobs and opportunities. Um Probably the most sexist job I had, but I learned a lot from it. Uh, Autry, my brother, was in uh, worked for a big company, and they had an in-house corporate counsel job. Um, and I worked, and I got paid great money. It was the late '80s. I'd never seen anything like this. Suits and skirts. The suits were the bosses, and they were all around the windows, and the girls were all in the inner circle, and they were sexual. I never, I, I'd never seen that. And um, but I learned a lot. I learned I didn't want to be just a skirt. I would always be on the suit side. And I was always talking to the secretaries. Why don't you go back to college? Why don't you do this? I've got a three-year-old. I'm like, go to community college. So you, you built little networks of people. Um, when I started in the Dallas DA's office, uh, the women were supposed to make less money without it being said. A guy has a baby. His wife's having a baby. He got a bump in salary. You have a baby. You get to go home. Obviously, but there's no maternity leave in state. You just use your sick time. Um, those are little things that you just kind of know it's not right, but you just hang in there. I think we're of all the age where there was no reporting um, sexual harassment. And I think we probably all of us in this call have probably been run around a little bit by somebody that was more uh, power of influence, if not literally just throwing it out there to see if there were takers. Um, yeah, that happened happened. We need you on this big trial. And then I go up to the room for work with this big case. It's just me and him. I'm like, this isn't like working on a big trial. This is me and you. And you just, you know, you, you never reported it. You just got yourself out of that situation. There wasn't any cell phones. And I was very lucky. Nothing, uh, no sexual advances were ever made to me that were so uh, bad that I was put in danger. But Women of a certain age, and I am of that age, if you worked in business, you had men that had the power, even if you were a professional, and they would try to have favors. And you just had to firmly, I've never had, I was never dealing with a jerk that pushed it beyond just putting his toe in the water. I remember running for judge in Kaufman, coming back home. I ran against a mature, the party doesn't matter, a mature middle-aged man, my age now, a guy 
And he, they were very offended that I would take this man's job. Didn't matter that I was a single mom wow. at that time with two kids. They were really offended. He was, people couldn't believe I at 30 something, because that was 20 years ago, was running against this guy that's my age. And I was more qualified because even then I had more trial experience because I'd been in the DA's office for 20 something years. I mean, at 10 years by then. So it, yes, you, you do it, but you, I've never, it's kind of like, okay, note to self, this is really happening. I was like, now I know what I felt and people, I'm just saying me, I have totally had people throw racist slurs and stuff at, at, at groups of people, not me specifically, but at groups getting off when we're kids. But the most specific, probably discrimination was as a woman when I sought that position as judge. I felt like a lot of that was sexist because I thought if an African-American man was coming back home to run for a job to help his family, people wouldn't have. It's like, well, you have a job in Dallas at the DA's office. Why are you coming down here taking his job? I'm like, well, he ain't doing his job, so I'm going to take it because he's not doing it and I can So something about you, that self-confidence had to have overtook those sorts of ID, you know, because that, that was a huge win. I mean, that's a really big, big deal. And we could do a whole segment someday on all the procedural history because I won. I had filed a TRO, which means he restrained me for taking the job. I did not take that position for a year. I was in litigation for a year with him. Spent thousands of dollars to get the job. That's a whole nother, but it's persistence. And I, I, I had thought about giving up during that year, but it worked. It resolved itself where I, in the end, after going to the Texas Supreme Court, won my position. So really, that speaks to really you having a strong sense of self because it would be easy enough to just, uh, you know, do you think that those things, though, just, you know, think about it. it doesn't, I mean, it builds a little character, right? It, it, little, I, yeah, it builds a little character. It, and you, but you're very humble because you know what? Don't let me tell, let me tell you along the way, I was a single mom. I, I put my name in on my own. But I met this wonderful man and Aaron Wiley. That's my, my name now, early Norvell Wiley. And I remember wanting to quit in the middle of this lawsuit. So we have really supportive men. We talked about that a little bit as we were getting on the call. And I remember just one day I was really down. I was on the phone with him. Remember the house phone? Um, this was like in uh, 2002. <laughs> so my house phone. Those things? Those things. Connected to the wall? Those yeah. things. Those things. You, you, yeah, connected to the wall. And I was on the phone. And I was like, you know what? Maybe I'll just quit. I mean, I've got a great job. And I love what I'm doing. I'm doing child abuse cases. And he goes, early, you won. The voters put you in that job. You won by 431 votes. I mean, that's not a recount number. I mean, it's not the hugest margin, but it's a, it's a 49-51 win for a newbie that came out, beat him. And he said, I'll never get, because his analogy was, well, if you throw the towel in and don't show up at the game, you won't win. So you can't throw the towel in. I went, okay, a sports analogy. I'm really having a meltdown here. He goes, yeah. He goes, it'll work itself out. So early, I mean, I just love how you have this confidence, stick-to-itiveness. I'm just going to see this through. And and then the grace on the other side of it to go, yeah, but then it like all worked out. And so that is really a strong sense of self of knowing this is right for me. I'm in the right place at the right time. Talk a little bit. Let's pivot just a a bit, because I think this appointment for being a district attorney in Kaufman County, that the governor stepped in because the district attorney was slain, 
And you have, you're actually an author of a book called Target on My Back. And this is the terrifying tale of life on a hit list. So, I mean, talk about these events for you and knowing you and how to step into that space. Talk a little bit about that. I, I would like to say, because it's important, Deb, I think, and I will definitely pivot, is something that you shared with what we're leaving, that sense of self and our core values, is make no mistake that there have been many, many disappointments about things you didn't achieve, places you didn't go that you wanted to do even more, the desires of your heart that you believe were what you wanted. But the reason that I'm able to go back and, and have that sense of self is I it's, it's my faith and I know that what I don't get, and I say get, or what I don't, I think I want and it doesn't work out, it's not meant to be mine. And so take take no mistake that when we have the values that we have and then we, we want to do something even more, you know, we've talked about disappointments that we've wanted. Like you, you guys in South Dakota would be great if you didn't have term limits. You were loving what you're doing. Those are disappointments. But then you've pivoted to something even better. And so I just wanted to share that before we left because we just have to remember there are times when we don't get, you know, we're telling the, the stories of wins, but there, there are many promotions and many things that I wanted or maybe a higher court and they didn't happen because those were not meant to be. And I was, I was kind of in that place in 2013 and in Kaufman County, I was a judge and I was thinking in my mind, as far as a career move, what would be a higher court to run for? What would be the next thing I could do? I, please believe me that I wasn't thinking I want to be the Kaufman County District Attorney. What happened in Kaufman is we had a justice of the peace that we didn't know. We would go with quirky, but we didn't know that he was, um, he has psychopathy. The guy's a psychopath. And because he had gotten prosecuted for stealing some computer equipment, that the crime was taken on videotape and he refused to plea. He had a grudge against the people he believed that got him in that position. And the people in his warp mind that got him in that position was the DA that prosecuted him and the assistant criminal chief district attorney that spearheaded it. And he had a few other people on his list. And what he did in January of 2013, he did what would be called a, um, um, he, he, in the parking lot, you know, uh, 50 to hundred yards away, in the parking lot, as it would go from the courthouse, he did a holdup. You couldn't tell it was a black mask and he shot and killed at point blank range, the chief felony prosecutor that tried the case. And then two months later, he killed that man's boss. And he did not care that he killed his wife who did nothing in her home. He killed her in cold blood. In fact, she was still alive when he left. And we believe that he killed her and shot her at point blank range in the doorway. And she did nothing but be married to the DA. And so when that happened, it was chaos. The first one, we were all um, just shocked. It happened at the courthouse. But by the time two months later, we thought maybe it was a random guy coming through that did something. But that didn't make sense. It was too planned. He had a mask on. He picked that person. But your mind kind of plays tricks on you and thinking that maybe it's okay. 
and then they were killed and it was chaos. And the book depicts not the total accuracy of everybody because you have people that were more involved that can give a different point of view, how that affected me with the kids at home and security detail with um, Homeland Security and Immigration Customs Enforcement. Those men and women were so professional watching our family because we didn't know who the killer was and who was next. And then around my birthday, April 12th, he was the evidence collected enough that they were through search warrants able to know that the suspect was actually the JP. Nobody thought it was the JP. I mean, he's an elected official. He stole something. He did get convicted, but his case was on appeal. He could just go and move away and start another life. And he didn't. And so that makes you have some kind of real mental issue. And he, um, he killed three people. He, I, I learned later because I, I was appointed by the governor. There was um, an appointment period. And, you know, I, I really prayed about that. And I talked to Aaron and he said, I think it's something if you want to do it, do it. And, and people ask me all the time, why did you do that? And the only thing I can tell you is as stupid as can be. I was so flipping mad. I really was. I was like, this guy is just going to, whoever, because did, we didn't know who it was really, is just going to come here, start killing people. And everybody was afraid. You could see it on people's face in the, and you'd see them on the, on the square or at the store, you know, it's happening in Kaufman. And they had that look in their eyes, like, you know, like, and I was like, this, this, this is not happening. And don't ask me what I was going to do. I mean, it's like, I mean, the okay corral, like, who am I going to shoot? I'm just like, I'm not doing that. But you, you, it was, this is what I thought to myself too. I thought I can do this. I was a prosecutor in Dallas. I did that for 12 years. I can be the DA. I know how to run the office. The only reason I didn't think about doing the DA's job is it's a 24-7 job and my kids were little, but 13 years or 10 years had elapsed. And I'm like, sure, I'll do this. My kids are in high school now. I can be running around and, you know, help police officers all the time of the day and night. I couldn't do that when they were little. And that's why I did it for stupid reasons. And then I find out that he was mad at me and I was actually on his hit list because when I was a judge, I found out that he was stealing money from the county by overbilling the county. And I pointed out to him and a few other attorneys, he wasn't the only one, but little did I know about the mental makeup of this guy that some psychiatrist told me one time, it's, it's some kind of grudge collector. He fits a profile of a person that if you slight, and he had decided he was going to work down that list. And, and I tell you, the, the, the relief and the guilt that he picked those people, it, it can sometimes be in conflict because I don't want to die. I certainly didn't want my family, but people, other people he picked first saved my life because, because his wife testified in open court that I was on his hit list and I was next, but God's grace just made me third, fourth or whatever number it was. And he was stopped. And when you think about that, like if I, when I used to think about that, like that, that would get me a little freaked out because what would always freak me out about it. And my dad just died is like my dad knowing that he lost me and my whole family. Like I would always think about him. Like, what would that be like? Mm -hmm. And my brothers, you know, but it didn't happen. So I'm happy. (laughs) 
So as you're telling this, you know, and I've read through pieces of your your book, I, I'm just curious, when you're in the middle of it and you talk about, I mean, there's got to be this, just almost this adrenaline rush 24-7 that you're living in the middle of it and anticipation. But it's got to be that post-adrenaline when you're sitting here talking about those moments. Does I'm just curious about the pre and the post and, and like you're in the middle is too much coming in at the point in time where you don't even realize it. Do you ever have that moment? It's like this almost like, I can't believe you obviously survived, but there's sort of this mental thing about how you survived it personally, mentally, emotionally, (laughs) and got through it. If we weren't like, if I ever really think about it, it could make me like tear up or I always get a little chill. When I was going through it, it's like I can get on this little thing, like just focus. I mean, I think some people call it um, compartmentalized. So if I'm in it, I'm in it. And I didn't know we're going to the end of it, but I knew I, I had confidence in the people around me. The, the, I knew the sheriff. He was a ranger. He was smart. We had the FBI. We had good, smart people. And we were going to figure out the first time. But by the time you got to three people dying, you had everybody in the state of Texas and you had every resource and I had, every, I had good people watching me, but you do get a little paranoid. I remember when Aaron and I were talking about this decision before I accepted it. So he was a prosecutor's prosecutor. And what he always said, you know, as a judge, I was, a, I was different than a prosecutor. And I remember him talking about it and encouraging me to do this. And I looked at him, I go, is there some reason that you want me to, you know, you want me to die? I mean, what's going on? So you get a little weird and he kind of laughed. He goes, baby, you know, I love you. I go, but you, you're, you're pushing this. He says, I think, and this is before we knew that Eric had angst with me. He said, I actually think you'll be safer in that job because we'll be focused on protecting just you as opposed to all the other people. And and it made sense. And once I made the decision, I just, I let it go. There was one thing I was reading when I was reading something about your background that we don't always think about that you you talk about in the book where you you still had to do all the things that women do. You oh, still absolutely. Grocery shopping. I, I'm just reading here. You had to make dinner. You had to get the kids to school. You do all those other things that women do, and yet you were living this oh my gosh moment. I, so I think that that is something that we as women, we it's not like we can give that part up. It's just like okay, now I'm just going to focus on this. I just think that's really fat. I just found that really fun to read. I don't know if any male agent listen, they're not going to appreciate this. So everybody, just like on television, whatever, the, the president has a name that they, they use for him. So the name that they called me was Traveler because they were like, and so I was the detail, the, the subject of the detail that people were like, would she slow down? I'm like, because they told me, live your life. I'm like, okay, well, one kid is driving, but the other I have to take to school. They're like, well, you work in Kaufman and he he's in school in South Dallas. I go, well, we get up at about 6.30 and we get him in the car and we go to Dallas. And then we come back. And if I don't have docket that morning, if somebody cancels, I might run in the grocery store, but we'll just take all the groceries out because I'm multitasking and there's a refrigerator and they couldn't believe it. So the joke among them is if we can just get her to the office, because then we can slow down and do some other work. They would do. Then in the afternoon, the oldest was doing baseball. He loved baseball. It was spring. So we had started spring ball. So we were going to games. 
I think that the thing out of that I learned is that Aaron could pick up his cleaning because I think the agent said, man, could you just get your cleaning, dang it? Because that would be one less stop with Erling. And Aaron was shamed because you got to remember, he's in the Fed system. So he knows all these guys. And they're like, okay, there is no, there's no Instacart. I am buying groceries. And I've got these two guys kind of casually trailing behind me with the backpack with the, some kind of gun, you know, and going out to dinner with friends. And it was Brad, the oldest senior year. He was starting to have senior parties. We had a party at the house. I mean, the guys, my name was Traveler. The other people that had detail were men who would go home after work, worked very hard at work, and their wives were doing all the things I was doing. Plus, I was about 15 or 20 years older than them at the time. So my kids were still, you know, they might've got around to golfing. I mean, I, I was also adjuncting at UNT teaching crim law. So once a week at night, I mean, we'd be go, you know, five 30, we would be there for the six to nine class. And they were just like, would she just go home, go to work? They hated me. I mean, in that sense, traveler, I was called traveler. There's just something so beautiful about having people really witness the truth of the matter. You're in this really high-powered position, but all of these other roles that women play, and we underestimate all those roles and all the balls that are in the air and all of the different things that women are thinking about to try to accomplish. And so it's really great that through all of that, while it was a terrifying experience of being protected, it was somewhat funny in a way that they could really see your true self and all of the different facets of it. So before we close here early, I would just, you know, you've talked a little bit about some advice to women as we've been talking here, like, you know, work hard, roll your sleeves up, just expect to come in the room and, and you have a right to be there and be yourself, be your true self. And that many times the learning comes in when it doesn't work out and you can learn a lot of things about yourself in perseverance and, you know, pulling yourself up from the bootstraps and changing and pivoting to another direction. But what advice would you like to give to women that might be listening to this? Some additional advice about really being themselves, because the truest version of you is the version that the world needs. I think like you would, a lot of people ask, what would you tell your younger self? One thing I would tell people with children, women with children, I mean, breathe, just breathe. I promise it's going to be all right. They're, they're, you know, they're, it's going to be all right. We, it's, we are so hard on ourselves. Um, women are so hard on ourselves. We think we're not the right size. We don't think we look right. Guys don't care that that's why. So that's back to you belong in that room. And if there's anything that your heart desires that it get, find out how, what it is, because don't go in there and have cop. Find out what it is, what what the tools are you need, or what what it is. I mean, I mean, let's not be unrealistic. If you want to be a judge, you have to be a lawyer first, and you have to practice for five years. So find out what it is, but do not set your sights low. I, we we um, as women, we are angry with men sometimes because they get in positions, and we say, well, "Why didn't the boss pick us?" Well, did we tell him that we wanted it, that we were interested? Did we, did we find a mentor? Let me, let, that is a powerful tool of, I've heard people calling it mentorship or even stronger words, you know, uh, to say, 
you find somebody, your mentor, if you're a woman, can be a woman, but it can be a man. You mm -hmm. find somebody that's where you want to be and you do what they are advising that you're comfortable with within the confines of your comfort level. And if they've been there and they're real and they're good to you. So most things in life, somebody's already thought through it. So don't waste your time thinking you, you got to do it the certain way. Figure out what you want. Find somebody that's going to help you. And if somebody's not going to help you, move on. I mean, don't don't waste your time with somebody that's not going to help you or somebody's pulling you down or somebody that's negative because you don't need those negative people around you. Um, get your support people in place and you go for it. And all the things that we have to do, um, some of them you still may want to do. Embrace the, the supportive people in your life. That'd be another girlfriend, your, your mom, your spouse just who it is and whoever it is and understand they're not going to always do it like you would like it. But if it gets done, it's fine. You don't, it doesn't have to be perfect. It just has to get done. And we have one life. Enjoy your life. Be blessed. Take care of yourself. Take care of yourself because there's only one self. And if you don't take care of yourself, nobody will. We know the old accent when they get on the plane, they always tell the parent to put their mask on first because you can't save anybody if you're not well. So be well. Wow. Wow. Well, early, we could just like keep talking to you. There's so many avenues and we just really appreciate you being a part of our podcast and sharing your inspiration and your story with other women to really embrace themselves, love themselves and start to move forward. And so we appreciate all of the people that tuned into this podcast. We hope you'll do it again. We like to leave you with a little thought. And for this time, think about how those early people in your life, your mother, your grandmother, your father, the people that really nurtured you and helped you to understand who you really were, have them go along with you on this ride of being your totally authentic self. Thanks again, everyone, for listening to this podcast. We hope you'll do it again. Thanks for tuning in. If you enjoyed our podcast, we'd be so jazzed if you rate us on whatever app you use to find us. And hey, be sure to tell all your friends about Influential She. And please visit us at InfluentialShe.com and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn. And you know what? If you come up with a new one, please let us know. In the meantime, remember, stay influential. This podcast is a proud member of the Teach Better Podcast Network. Better today, better tomorrow, and the podcast to get you there. Explore more podcasts at teachbetter.com slash podcasts, and we'll see you at the next episode.